You're listening to Religion Matters. This is Religion Matters, the podcast discussing the intersectionality between issues surrounding religion in the world and the way these issues may or may not impact the various parts of our daily lives. And we have another special podcast for you, another student project, this time from Chapman University. Sophia Lieberman just finished her second year at Chapman University, and she was taking a class of mine called Studying Religion. And her project looks at the ways Jewish women preserve modern Jewish culture and traditions through the use of folklore and magic. She worked really hard on this. I hope you enjoy. My name is Sophia and welcome to my podcast. Today we're going to be looking into Jewish folklore and magic and its impact amongst modern Jewish women. According to Cambridge University, folklore is the traditional stories and culture of an ethnic group or community. Dan Ben Amos, who is a religious Jewish folkloric scholar, says that Jewish folklore is a relatively new area of study. It's just come about since around the 60s. Jewish folkloric traditions provide access to Jewish history that we previously wouldn't have known due to the loss of culture, the loss of people, or just the loss of information over time. Judaism is much more than a religion. It's an ethnic group, it is a cultural group, and it thrives off of its independent culture from the area that it's around. So throughout history, Jewish women have been the keepers of Judaism, whether that's through their food or their clothing or songs, stories, really anything that has anything to do with Judaism, women have been the people who've passed it down and who've kept Judaism alive. So without folkloric stories and music, Judaism would only be a religion. It would no longer be an ethnicity. So there's actually various genres of folklore. Unfortunately, I can only get into a few today. One of my favorite genres is salvage research. Salvage research is a study that came about as a way to preserve these Jewish folklore stories that were disappearing over time. So you see a lot of these in the smaller Jewish communities, such as Iraqi Jews or Ethiopian Jewish communities. And salvage ethnographers are people who study all of their written texts that have been found over time. So a lot of things that you see are Yiddish proverbs, which is really interesting because most people think Yiddish is solely a European language but there are variations of Yiddish all across Jewish communities in the world. So this happened during the Holocaust where Jewish people would start writing their version of Proverbs in Yiddish because really they were the only people who could understand them. So an example of this proverb would be a question like, how was it or how are you? And the common reply would be, yaya tov vitov shehaya, which basically means it is good, it was good. And it's supposed to be slightly humorous because it's kind of ironic. It really wasn't good when they were writing this, but it was a way to say, hopefully it will be good now. We can say it was good in the past, even if it wasn't. So terms like these are what salvage research saves and otherwise we would never have known. And whether we know it or not, these have embedded themselves into Jewish culture, American culture, and especially Israeli culture. If you are Jewish or Israeli or 
you speak Hebrew or Arabic, you probably know the term Shalom Aleichem, which means may peace be with you. And in Judaism, the term Shalom Aleichem is responded with Aleichem Shalom. And this has a lot to do with the way Jewish people love to argue with each other. It's just kind of our culture. But you say, like, may peace be with you. And the response is, you be with peace. So these come from Yiddish proverbs. And without salvage research, we would never have found those. Um, a lot of Yiddish proverbs have become common Yiddish words that we use in mass American culture. Things like schlep or schmuck, which is a common favorite. Meshigana, which is my personal favorite word, which basically means crazy. Tuchis, or in the American world, tushy. Um, schmooze. And another great one is the word fabissina, which maybe not a lot of people know, but as us Americans, we know it as resting bitch face. So I think that is a really funny comparison that, again, salvage research has helped us to integrate ourselves into modern American and just international culture in general. Another genre of folklore is Yiddish folk songs. This is really the best genre out there. It is so interesting with such a deep history. Jewish music in general is a really complex kind of idea. There's hundreds of different genres, and even within Yiddish folk music, there's a bunch of genres that can include things like lullabies, comedic songs, love songs, really anything. There is probably a Yiddish song out there for it. And little do people know, Yiddish music has been dominated by women. But what has happened over time is that Jewish women write the music and men take the credit for it. So often we don't know who the actual authors of this music is. But over time, we have found that a lot of these songs have been written by Jewish women. And we know this because there are terms in there that really only Jewish women would use. Things like Yiddish curses, which I'll get more into later. But songs and music in general have a deep history for women in the Eastern European Jewish community and the Sephardic Jewish community in all Jewish communities across the world. And Yiddish songs usually tell a story. So my favorite one is As de Rebe, which is a song that a Hasidic woman wrote about how Hasidic men do everything that the Rebbe, who is in the Hasidic world, the head rabbi, that Hasidic men do everything that the head rabbi says. So the song starts off by saying in English, as the rabbi sings, so do all the Hasidim, which is making fun of Hasidic people, even though she is Hasidic. And this ties really deep into Jewish humor, which is something that's extremely complex. And that's actually the next genre of folklore art. So Jewish humor is really, really hard to pin down. And scholars have actually decided to deter away from writing an actual definition for fear of it leaving out um, a specific type of Jewish person. And Jewish humor really depends on your class, your race, your gender, your geography, your ethnic group. It's all going to be different depending on who you are as a person. So Jewish humor originally was a way to cope and deal with generational trauma, with current trauma that was going on. As I'm sure most of you know, Jewish people have been persecuted since the moment they came into existence. And humor has been something that's a coping mechanism. So Jewish people, as I've kind of previously mentioned, love to question everything, whether that's questioning our religion, questioning what our family and friends have to say, we really like to just make sure that nobody has one answer. There is a common joke that if a non-Jewish person has one answer for something, a Jewish person has six. We can never agree on anything, and that's a lot of where our humor comes from. And we will question God, and we'll make a joke out of that. We'll question our religious values in general, really anything, and that has deep roots in Jewish humor. A lot of people don't know this, but Jewish women actually play a huge role in the creation of Jewish humor. Normally when we're thinking about 
Jewish comedians or where Jewish humor comes from. It's probably somebody like Adam Sandler or Jerry Seinfeld. But really, in the depths of what Jewish humor is, it was Jewish women who spoke Yiddish. So Yiddish curses were a really big thing back in Eastern Europe. They are violent, they are mean, and Jewish women use them when somebody that they didn't like did something that they didn't like. And if you're Jewish, it's possible that you heard your grandma or you heard your mom talk about her grandma saying these things. I know I've definitely heard my mom tell me stories about her grandparents saying all these curses. One of my favorite ones that we can tell that there's a lot of humor in it. In English, it means may he crawl on his belly. In Yiddish, it's Kirim Zol Er Afin Boike. So you can tell that may he, may he crawl on his belly is a very abstract curse to give somebody. And most of the curses are like this. There are some really horrible ones that are definitely just curses in general, but you can see a lot of humor coming out through these times of turmoil and living in shtetls or back in Poland where there were a bunch of violence going on. Jewish women were coming up with Yiddish phrases as a way to cope, so using humor to cope. And another way we see Jewish women involved in Jewish humor is actually at the butt of jokes of Jewish men. I'm sure a lot of you know the term Jewish American princess, or for short, J-A-P, and you've either called somebody it, you've heard somebody be called it, or you've been called one yourself, probably. And originally, it started off as a really offensive thing that Jewish men came up with to kind of demonize and dehumanize Jewish women. And it basically meant that you were a Jewish woman who was probably, a, a young Jewish woman, who was probably wealthier, or you were pretty, or you had something that someone else didn't have, and you were criticized for that, not because you were a bad person, not because you did anything immoral or you weren't following mitzvahs or anything like that, simply because you were a Jewish woman who existed in a space that wasn't made for you. I know I've personally been called a Jap in a demeaning way, and I have plenty of friends who have as well, but recently Jewish women have been reclaiming that word, which I personally think is lovely. And we've been using it as a way to say, I'm funny, I'm pretty, yeah, I have a lot of cool stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that, and it's okay, and you can't use these words to hurt me. And you can see that where Jewish humor started from, from Jewish women, is coming back with the reclamation of that word. So Jewish humor, interestingly enough, didn't really rise until Yiddish had a bigger rise, especially in terms of American culture. When a lot of Jewish people immigrated from Eastern Europe to America, Yiddish was the only language that they spoke. Once they started to learn English and their children started to learn English, you could see the humor rise because there was this mix of languages and generations and cultures that were coming together with generational trauma, current trauma, that all made Jewish humor so unique, which is part of the reason you can't put a definition on it. So you normally see Jewish humor associated with Yiddish because Hebrew is not a particularly funny language. It is the language of the Torah, of the Talmud, of all of our scriptural texts, so it tends to not have humor written inside of it, which is another reason why Jewish people are not just a religion, but an ethnicity and a culture as well, because we have things that are separate from our scriptural ideas. So a lot of Jewish humor is actually attributed to self-aggression, masochism, and paranoia, which I found really interesting, because all of those are symptoms of generational trauma. If you're Jewish, you probably had family in the Holocaust, or you know people that did, or you met Holocaust survivors. And we can all personally attest to the fact that, that stuff lives with you and it lives inside of you. And that's a lot of where our humor comes from. It's a way to cope and it's a way to deal. And 
Actually, a lot of studies have shown that humor is a mechanism for survival. Using irony can help you survive because it lowers your cortisol levels, it lowers your heart rates. So humor has been something that has helped us survive through generations. So the last genre of folklore and Jewish culture that I'll be talking about today is folkloric art. Folkloric art is some of my favorite kinds of Jewish culture because a lot of people don't know that the art they're looking at has a Jewish background, has Jewish motifs or symbolism, but they do. And there's been a huge push, especially in Israel right now, to preserve the material culture while Jewish people are still in diaspora. So a lot of what happened is that during the Holocaust, Jewish art was destroyed or burned, stolen, and either it's never been returned or it's gone forever. So a lot of Jewish researchers and folkloric academics are currently looking to save all of these things and they're putting them in museums. And museum exhibitions are actually some of the greatest things that Jewish folklore could look to right now. You can see here, I have my great, great, my two times great grandmother's candlesticks that she actually brought over from Poland in the early 1900s. So these things are over 120 years old now. And interestingly enough, as old and beautiful as they are, they were very common when they came about. I know three people who have the same exact candlesticks because their families came over at the same time. So even though these things might not, in terms of quantity, be slim, they have so much value because they've been preserved for so long. And Jewish people, especially the householders of the family who tended to be the Jewish women, would treasure these things with their life. My great-great-grandmother brought these over on a ship that took her months to get here, and they've been passed down for generations. So same with this Kiddush cup. This Kiddush cup's only two generations old, but it has still been passed down, and that's a huge part of the material Jewish art, as well as physical paintings as well. And if you go to a place like the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, you'll find the most beautiful paintings and the Dead Sea Scrolls, along with preserved Jewish clothing from the 1800s or even before that, are things that otherwise we might not ever find. And if we don't know where they are, we can't see them, we'll lose that culture and history forever. So this next section is on Jewish rituals and magic, which is something I find super interesting. For a while, I even considered myself a Jewish witch, which is a kind of contentious topic in the Jewish community, but magic has played a huge role in Judaism from the moment of its existence. So the Geniza, which is actually a text that's not used anymore, it's not recognized by the Jewish community. It was an ancient text that had magical spells, herbal remedies, incantations, ritual things, kind of anything like that, that was used actually by Jewish magicians in a non-religious manner. So Michael Schwartz, who is a Jewish religious scholar on all things Jewish magic, including angels and spells, really anything, says that there's a really deep history and tradition of rituals in scriptural Jewish texts, even though we might not follow those now. If you look far enough back, you will be able to find them. So there's a lot of features of rituals. Some of them include things like incantations, and an example of this would be reciting powerful names of the divine. Now, this is something that's kind of prevalent in all religions. And in Judaism, we see that reciting certain names of God gives a ritual its purity and its power. And we might know God through names like Hashem or Adonai, or in Christianity, you might say Yahweh, or just God in general. But there are tons of other names that we don't know about anymore that have either been lost or are just not really used. 
that give rituals and prayers their power, which is really interesting because a lot of the times we just think of the prayer as a whole being powerful, but without God's name in it, it would lose all of its respectability. So in the Sartura, the greatest prayers and rituals are connected to saying not just God's name in different ways, but also angels' names. So we're meant to recite God's name in a way to purify ourselves and purify our prayers. And there is actually a name that is too holy to speak that to my knowledge actually has been lost now over time. It's a 12 letter word for God that gave you the most power and was the most pure thing you could ever say, which is why we don't have it anymore because only certain people could recite it. So fasting and diet is also a type of rituals that we see, especially in the Geniza, but especially, especially in the Torah and the Talmud. So a lot of us know what fasting is. It's in a lot of different religions. Um, most commonly, Jewish people fast on Yom Kippur. If you're religious, there's so many other fast days, but most Reformed Jews choose to only fast on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So in biblical times, a fast could actually be up to 40 days, which has to do with Moses and his journey up to Mount Sinai, which was a 40 day journey. And fasting is actually a ritual sign of both purity and mourning, which is really interesting because normally those two things sound slightly contradictory to each other. But in terms of Yom Kippur, which, like I said, is the Day of Atonement, we're mourning for our sins as well as purifying our bodies for the new year. So kosher, which is the dietary laws and restrictions of Judaism, ties a lot into ritual fasting. So in biblical times, they were a lot less separate than they are now because while the ideas of ritual fasting were coming about, so were the ideas of kosher. So there were days that were considered fast days, but you could eat certain foods that were kosher. And as time has progressed and kosher laws have become more steadfast and the fasting days have all been found, there's no new fasting days as of recently, they have become totally separate entities. Although keeping kosher is one of the biggest mitzvahs and so is fasting. So that's where they still share some similarities. Now, like I said, a lot of modern Reformed Jews don't fast in the way that the Torah says so, or even in the way that Orthodox Jews do. Yom Kippur tends to be the main fast day, but a lot of Jews will recognize the fast, even if they're not participating, in order to become closer to God. One of my favorite stories is the story of Param in where Esther, who is the main character of the story, actually fasts for a couple days, I'm not sure how many, in order to pray to God and become so pure for God that she could save the entirety of the Jewish population. So there's a lot of significance in fasting and helping your fellow Jewish people or becoming closer to God. And the story of Esther is about a woman, so we can see how really in Judaism, almost everything relates back to how a woman imagines the rituals and folklore traditions. So another important ritual of Judaism, which is a bit of a controversial one to say the least, is sexual purity and social avoidance. So there is something called nida, which is when a woman is on her period, she's considered unclean. This is something that reform and conservative Judaism have completely abandoned. But in biblical Judaism and in Orthodox Judaism, when a woman is on her period, she cannot touch any man. She is ritually unclean. She is religiously unclean. And at the end of her period, she must go to a mikvah. A mikvah is basically a spa 
where you cleanse yourself and you become clean again. Now, on the surface level, this seems horribly, horribly misogynistic. There's really no way around it. But as time has progressed, again, with the idea of reclamation, not only are they saying, no, it doesn't make me unclean, but they're saying, maybe it wasn't meant like that. Maybe it was meant as a period of time to rest, to take time for yourself, to bond with other women, and then to go and to get to cleanse yourself. And not only just for you, but to be closer to God, which was especially in biblical times, that was the main goal. And interestingly enough, if a community, a Jewish community, has a Torah, but not a mikvah, they're supposed to sell the Torah in order to buy a mikvah. That's how important being a woman is in Judaism. So really, there's two ways to look at it. You can see it from a completely misogynistic perspective, which of course is valid and it has its concerns. But there are positive ways that women have been taking these ideas about what their period is, about what nida is, about what the mikvah is, and making it something that's totally feminist and is made to help and empower other women, which is so interesting. So the last section of ritual and magic is the Geniza. So I kind of have mentioned it before, but there's lots of sections of it. And as I've said, it's not really a text that's used anymore, but I thought it'd be interesting to share one or two incantations that's, that are used. So the main goal of the Geniza was either to create a prayer for somebody, to alter something for someone, to help somebody find something, to change an object. There was hundreds of things that these Jewish magicians and practitioners were coming up with. So this one is one of my favorites that I'm going to read for you. So this is for finding a thief. If you suspect that a certain person stole something from you and you do not know who took it, if you know the names of the suspect, take some clay that is used for pots and write the names of the suspects on paper, each one separately, for the number of suspects, then make balls from the clay corresponding to the written number of suspects. Put each name of the suspects in a ball. The balls should be like nuts. Then put all of the balls into a vessel filled with water, a bowl or a cup, and say this psalm over the cup in which the balls have been placed. A mask of Asaf, give ear my people to my teaching. Then you will see that the ball has the name of the thief written on it, split into two or three, and the writing will be floating on the surface of the water. Basically, this is a completely illogical magical practice that goes on for much longer on whether the clay balls will split, what it means if they split, and there's no actual Judaism behind this, but these were magic tools that were only used by Jewish people and have since disappeared. And there's hundreds like this. There's ways to know if your husband is cheating on you. There's ways to know if your wife is looking at other men. And they all include really random things and objects like clay or eggs or herbs that embody kind of the land that Jewish people were on. And you can tell where they were living from what the Geniza is saying. So on a somewhat culminating level of everything we've just talked about is the concept of women, Yiddish, and symbolism kind of all together. So first I want to talk about what being a Jewish female author actually looks like in Jewish culture. Historically, as I've kind of mentioned previously, there's been a huge struggle of Jewish women to actually get their names on the work that they've done. That does not just include the Yiddish songs that I was talking about. A lot of that has to do with the real folklore stories that I've been alluding to this whole time. 
Folklore stories include things like the Gollum, the Divok, Miriam. There's hundreds of them that have just kind of evolved, changed, come about over probably at least 2,000 years. Folklore stories are probably, aside from Yiddish music, the core of Jewish culture. Um, most Jewish people I knew grew up hearing some aspect of the story, or they've seen it in pop culture. Like, the Golem is Gollum from Lord of the Rings. There's things that are embedded. What people don't normally realize is that the stories that we're reading have a background in Jewish women writing them or them being about Jewish women. And Jewish women are either painted really horribly, like witches in a very negative way, demons or the cause of their husband's downfall or going off and killing people. They're normally not portrayed in a really light way, even though a lot of the original stories were written by women and had nothing to do with women being evil. But as time has moved forward and men have gotten a hold of them and removed the original authors and taken them as their own, they've really adapted over time into something that they're not. So things like the Gollum and the Dybbuk are two stories that we're not sure, but most likely have their history in Jewish women writing them. But the stories that we all grew up hearing were the male dominated stories. And women's place in Jewish culture is really interesting because kind of relating to Nida, like I was talking about, there's this double-edged sword of women being holier than men, being praised more, being these beautiful creatures that are so pure, or being completely deviant, subservient to their husbands, not allowed to be rabbis, or kind of just held in a submissive place. And it becomes really complicated for Jewish women who want to pursue Jewish art Jewish writing, Jewish songs, anything like that, it becomes very, very complicated. So recently there's been a rise in the retelling of these stories that we all grew up with from a female perspective. And you can see the history of that in the Talmud. A lot of authors who were rabbis of the Talmud have actually admitted that their wives were working with them. Now, to be fair, they were working behind them, so nobody knew telling them, giving them commentary on the Talmud. So if you've ever read the Talmud, you know that every section has pages upon pages of commentary. But a lot of that commentary was actually given to the authors by their wives. So there's a long, deep history of Jewish women writing and kind of creating the whole basis of our modern religion. And our folklore stories certainly aren't exempt from that. And Regina Jonas, who was technically speaking, who we think is the first female rabbi, she was ordained in 1935. But most of us don't recognize her as the first female rabbi because we haven't learned about her because her story has been erased. Now, part of that is because she was killed in the Holocaust, but the other part is because she wanted to be an Orthodox rabbi. And she followed all the Orthodox tenets, but technically speaking, she wasn't allowed to, but she was rewriting history. Now, in a modern lens, there's been a large retelling of folk stories. And one of my favorite books is The Witches of Eskazoo, which I have here. And in it is probably around eight or nine stories that are all classic Jewish folk stories, but have been retold from one of my favorite Jewish media faces. Her name is Roots Metal. She's incredible. She's actually a Latina Jew, which a lot of people don't think exist. And one of the greatest stories I think, as I've mentioned, is the Dybbuk. The Dybbuk is this demon that comes when someone does something wrong. 
and kind of torments a town. And in this story, a woman is who finds out what the Dybbuk is and who the Dybbuk is and why he's seeking revenge. And all the men of the town say she's stupid and why would you believe a woman? Until the rabbi comes and says, why would you say this? You're all just as bad as the Dybbuk. A woman is as powerful as we are and can solve any of these problems and none of you could solve it, but she did. So these modern retellings really aren't that modern. They're kind of the true stories that we forgot about in the past, which just make them that more special. Another form of symbolism that has to do with women in Judaism is the color blue. Super random, very interesting. You can actually see I have blue here. My tichel, which is a headscarf, is blue. Jewish women tend to feel a connection to the color blue, which is like not anything I realized had an actual reason until recently. Obviously the colors on the Israeli flag have blue and white, but really this comes from the Kabbalah. In the Kabbalah, the word techelet, which means blue in Hebrew, which is more of an ancient Hebrew term for blue, has a lot of significance. Gadi Sagiv, who is another Jewish scholar of Jewish folklore and symbolism, says that techelet, which is the biblical term for blue, is mentioned repeatedly in Jewish culture and literature. And he argues that blue is actually a protective color against the evil eye. And it's not just because the culture surrounding Judaism, like Mediterranean cultures, had the evil eye, but actually because Judaism has its own background with the color blue. So in the Kabbalistic tradition, a blue cloth is supposed to protect the female godhead from dangers like the evil eye or from demons or for really anything that's going to harm it. And it's supposed to be the color of the tabernacle of Sitzit, and in biblical times, blue thread was woven into every tzitzit, into every tallit. It was the color of the tabernacle, like I said. So it has a lot of deep-rooted significance for Jewish people that a lot of us don't even realize. And in the Zohar, the color blue is supposed to be protective, especially of feminine souls, not just of women in general, but of all feminine souls. And the evil eye, which is really common in Jewish culture more than the religious aspect, was often used to protect women as opposed to men. And you'll actually find the hamsa normally, which is the hand, tends to be in the color blue. So we can see that there's tons of symbolism in Jewish culture and almost all of it relates back to women. So this final section that I'll be talking about are the personal connections that I have to the previous topics that I've been mentioning. How I, as a modern Jewish woman, am affected by all of these things and how they impact my life as well as Jewish women's lives in general now in modern times. So I'm going to be giving some examples of the stories I grew up hearing about my family, folklore stories that were read to me as a kid, music we listened to, and just kind of the feminine aspect of all things Jewish that I grew up with. So as I've mentioned previously, I grew up reform. I know I'm wearing a headscarf, so it could be a little bit off-putting, but I just kind of consider myself Jewish. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I was raised with such a mystical view of Judaism. I wasn't raised with the halachic view. Halachic, for those of you who don't know, is the strict laws of Judaism that you're supposed to follow. But in Reformed Judaism, we don't really follow a lot of those. We come from a very spiritual place. And that was something that, as a woman, really resonated with me. In Reformed Judaism, women are allowed to be rabbis. I'm allowed to show my hair if I want, or my shoulders. And I don't have to dress a certain way. I'm not the property of somebody. I'm just me and being Jewish can be not only my religion, but also my culture. And growing up, 
Yiddish music, as I'm sure you guys can tell at this point, was a prominent, prominent part of my life. My grandma, although she doesn't speak Yiddish, her mom did. And it's been passed down, and we all know a lot of Yiddish at this point. Although, sadly, I don't speak Yiddish fluently. I can pick out words. I know a lot of sayings and phrases, and same with my mom. And Yiddish is something that was passed down historically by women to women. And although Yiddish is considered a dead language, the holders of it are Jewish women whose families escaped Europe during the Holocaust or came before. And that's something that makes Yiddish really special. It has these generational ties that really nothing else has that at least I can find. It is a cultural thing that is so unique to Jewish women. Obviously, Jewish men speak it too, but there's a, a tie with Yiddish to women that's just very different. And my mom and my grandma grew up playing me Yiddish music all the time. As I've mentioned, the song As Abbey is like my favorite song ever. And I listen to a lot of Jewish folklore music. The stories are just beautiful. And when you listen to music that was written at the time that your family lived in the place that it was written, it feels very personal. And there's a lot of great dancing that goes with Yiddish music. So I grew up listening to the Barry sisters who are were three Yiddish singers. And my family and I would dance around the house, especially during holidays like Hanukkah or Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, any fun, happy holiday. We'd put on the Yiddish music, all hold hands and dance. And it was just like a really joyous memory that I know a lot of Jewish people experienced growing up. And that's a connection that you can't really ever take away. And it just kind of shows the impact that this music has on us. And behind me, you'll hear a clip of Ez Rebbe, which I hope will make you laugh, even if you don't understand Yiddish. You can tell the intonation is just so funny and there's humor behind it, there's sadness behind it, there's really every emotion. And that's just part of what makes Yiddish music so special is that whatever you want, you'll be able to find it. There's always something. And the language too is just, to me, the most beautiful language. And getting to hear my mom or my brother or my grandma or anybody in my family say a word or say something, the feeling of knowing that people around you think you're speaking gibberish or that almost like it's a secret language. It's something so personal and you know you can connect to other Jewish people when you say you know a Yiddish word or when you say mensch or mshugana or any word like that. And you know that they might not know the word, but they'll understand that you're speaking the language of our generations, of, all, of our culture. And that, to me, that's really beautiful. Another thing about Judaism, especially reform again, that has really impacted me is Jewish clothing. And I think this is often something reformed Jewish women don't think about. But in reform Judaism, women can wear tallits. Now, conservative women sometimes do, but Orthodox women will not. It's something that's reserved strictly for men. A tallit is normally silk or cotton, and it's a cloth that you'll see wrapped over a Jewish person's shoulders while they're in shul or in synagogue and there's normally some symbolism on them. And when I was younger, I didn't know that in other sects of Judaism, women didn't wear them. And I was so excited when I got to pick mine out. It was silver and it had all the animals from Noah's Ark on it. And I have it still. And to me, it's just the most beautiful thing. It's a piece of art, which relates right back to our folklore. Not only is it art because it was hand painted, but it tells a story of the Torah, of folklore, of Jewish culture. 
and I got to wear that and wrap it around my body. I think that's something really significant that not every cultural group has, or even if cultural groups do have them, it's in very different ways. And I can only speak for Judaism, but for us, we can literally wrap ourselves in our folklore, in our culture, in our mysticism, and feel that presence on us, that presence of a thousand years ago when these people were writing the stories. They had no idea that in 2023, we'd be wearing that physically. I know also, like I said, I wear a headscarf sometimes that I'm reform. Typically headscarves or tichel as we call them in Yiddish are reserved for married Orthodox women. But there's been a modern resurgence in reform, unmarried Jewish women wearing headscarves as a sign of their Judaism to outwardly show their pride, to not hide who they are, to let people know that they're Jewish. And because it's something that makes them feel beautiful or makes them feel closer to God. I know for me, growing up, I lived in a, a relatively sheltered community where there wasn't really a lot of anti-Semitism, but as I got older and there was a very drastic rise, I wanted to show the world that I was Jewish. And I'm so grateful that I can do that because my ancestors were not able to. So a lot of reform women have that same feeling. So they're wearing their headscarves now as a sign to the rest of the world that we're Jewish, we're here, we're proud, we're women. And it's kind of taking back things like I was talking about Nita, where maybe they have a bit more of a misogynistic implication, but we're taking them and we're claiming them as their own. I'm not wearing this because I'm forced to, I'm wearing it because I want to. And I know that's the feeling of a lot of Jewish women who are unmarried or reform or just young in general who are choosing to cover their hair. It's a feeling of power over anti-Semites, over men who don't think you deserve the rights you deserve, and just in general, and it makes a lot of women feel beautiful. There's also, in Judaism, a lot of men will wrap tefillin, which is another way of physically putting our culture onto your body, which again, I think is something very unique. You wrap your arms in leather and there's these, they're called phylacteries, these little boxes that have Hebrew words, really anything that has significance to our culture in them. And you pray with them and Orthodox men do it, I think twice a day. And really, if you're in the conservative reform, anybody can do it whenever they want. And I just think it's, again, beautiful to be able to enclose yourself in something that's been passed down for now around 3,000 years. So another source of my personal connection is Judaica. Judaica, I have, as I pointed out here, I have a menorah, a kiddush cup, and my Shabbat candlesticks that were my bubby sugars all here. This is Judaica. Judaica is also a mezuzah, which goes on a doorpost of a Jewish person's house that gives it protection. Judaica could be jewelry here, you can't see, but I wear my name in Hebrew, that could be considered Judaica. Judaica is any physical household item, jewelry, thing you put up in your room that has any Jewish significance. And I can guarantee you, you walk into almost any Jewish household and you'll find something, something that's Jewish, even if it's a book like this. We have this book, which is The Joys of Yiddish. We have Why God Loves Stories. There's hundreds of things that could be considered Judaica and having them kind of connects you to all of these other people. Like I mentioned, I know multiple people who have the same exact candlesticks as me that have been passed down for generations. It gives you this connection, especially amongst women, you know, in terms of jewelry. Normally I'm not wearing them now, but I'll wear evil eye rings and I have my name here and I wear a Hebrew necklace and you see other Jewish women wearing them and it's definitely a sense of connection or something to talk about. And these things have deep significance. So a common item that you'll see in art in Judaica is a pomegranate, which 
technically, we're, we're not sure if this is true, every pomegranate has 613 seeds, which are how many mitzvahs are in the Torah. So you'll see a lot of that, but the pomegranate also has a lot of signs of the feminine godhead, which is in the Kabbalah. So all of these things, which you can kind of take out of context from their religious background and see them as just the culture. And that's what a lot of Jewish women are doing nowadays, looking for Jewish religious things and pulling the culture out of them and using what makes them comfortable so that they can be as Jewish as possible while fitting in an environment that feels right for them. So lastly, I've kind of touched on all of this at this point, but folktales and rituals have a deep impact on not just Jewish women, but Jewish people in general. And from stories like the witches of Eskazum to the joys of Yiddish, to why God loves stories, to songs like As the Rebbe Sings, to really any Jewish thing. It's so important that as Jewish people, we find them, we salvage them, we sing the songs, we read the stories, we reclaim them in ways that are right to us. And that will continue the longevity of our religion. And Jewish women, as they've been doing since 3000 years ago, when we first came into existence, have been the mothers that have passed down Judaism and are the reason Judaism is still here. That was Sophia Lieberman from Chapman University. Thanks again for sharing your research project with us. If you'd like to see a video link of her presentation, you can find that link in the podcast description. Thanks again. See you next time.